Hi everyone and welcome back to Missing Bits. I hope you are all well and not going too mad in this strange time we are living through. We are recording this during the COVID-19 crisis and I have never seen anything quite like it. Personally, I've been locked inside for the last three weeks and the walls haven't started closing in on me yet, but I can sort of see them wanting to move. But I am looking forward to this ending and seeing what the new, new world looks like. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Georgia from Brisbane, also known to us Southerners as Bris Vegas. Georgia is 28 and a right below knee amputee since August last year. Georgia is known to friends and lazy people simply as G. So putting my hand up as a lazy person, welcome to Missy Bits, G. <laughs> it's nice to be here. <laughs> so how is this horrible virus affecting you so far? I'm definitely having some flashbacks to uh, when I had my initial accident and I was stuck inside for so long. Um, and then I guess even a lot of people can probably feel it after your initial amputation, having that bit of time feeling so isolated and unable to get out or drive and do the things you want to do. So I'm having a bit of a flashback. I feel like it was not that long ago that I was stuck inside. Are you able to work? Yes, luckily. Um, my hours did get cut quite a bit um, because I work uh, at UQ at the uni. Without the students there, I don't have a ton of work, but luckily I can still sort of work part-time. So I'm really thankful for that. And being able to set up from home is good. I do miss People, though, I'm a talker and not being around people all the time is definitely a struggle. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can understand that. I've got my wife here, but she's working, so I can't really interrupt. I'm sort of walking around on eggshells. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, you can't, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, you can't just bugger all the time. <laughs> I make sure when she locks, logs off at the end of the day that I welcome her home and we sit down and we have a chat. <laughs> yeah, try to, try to keep it as normal as possible. Let's go right, right, right back and find out where you grew up. Um, a little bit all over the place in the early years. I was born in Darwin. My dad, my rough brat, so dad was in the Air Force. So we went Darwin, Wagga, Canberra, and then to Bruce Vegas. Um, and I've been here pretty much ever since. Yeah, one older brother, which definitely I was um, a super tomboy as a kid, which never really wore off. Um, uh, he taught me to be super rough and tumble, want to play sports with the boys. So it was always about football or inline hockey or gridiron or dirt bikes or something where I wasn't one of many girls. I definitely um, got that from having an older brother, I think. <laughs> taught, you to, taught you to rough and tumble. Sure. Don't you think it's wonderful that um, now, well, I, I think it's wonderful anyway, that there is so much opportunity for girls to play sport now, cricket and football and rugby league and there's so many opportunities uh, now. Yes, incredible. And sports that I never, when I first played gridiron, I was, I think I was one of two girls on the whole league when I first played gridiron. Um, and I only got a year in because after 18, so you could turn 18 that year, but after that you weren't allowed to play, which I understood because you were playing with, you know, 20, 30, 40-year-old men. Um, and it became a little bit too dangerous it was really difficult but a few years after that they started a women's league and now gridiron in australia is huge we like an australian girls gridiron team that goes over and plays with america like it's incredible and it's grown in the last few years like so much it's just it's so great to see i, I remember being a little kid and um playing football and there was a couple of girls hanging around in those days and they were damn good you know really good skills and 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 quite prepared to get in and get rough and dirty. Um, and then when they got to 12, they disappeared. Yes, it's just so sad, so sad that that happened. And I, and I love that that's not the case anymore. And even um, it's, I grew up being sort of one of the only and really 
liking that, but that sort of sets you, it like pushes you away from um, making friends for girls as, as a young girl because it was sort of like, well, no, I, I played this sport and like, well, look at this bruise I got. And, um, but as I grew up and as it's changed and these sports have become more readily available for women, it's so cool to meet other women who like that. Like when I played gridiron, I was like, yes, finally, other girls get it. Like, oh, look at this bruise I got, oh, this big hit that I – and I was like, oh, wow, other girls actually really like this stuff too. Like it's not just me. <laughs> Yep, I think it's fantastic. But so moving moving around a little bit when you were a kid, um, did that interfere with school? Uh, no, we stopped sort of as we hit high school age because Dad sort of got out of the Air Force then wanting us to be more stable for the high school years. Um, personally, though, I loved changing schools. I just thought it was such, like, I'm a bit of a people person. I can talk. <laughs> so to me, um, like, meeting new people and the opportunity to, like, make new friends and stuff was always really, really exciting. Um, opposed to sort of staying in one place. What, what sort of student were you? Was it was it more of a social thing for you, or was it a serious? Um, well, social. <laughs> I definitely I wasn't a dropout, but I definitely like I was not a straight A student. I was happy if I got some B's. <laughs> I was stoked. <laughs> it sounds exactly like my kids. They um they they grew up enjoying the social aspect of school, so they didn't take a lot of time off. But school was more social for them. Yes, I was. I was the same, yeah. Like, I think I definitely could have. Had I put more emphasis on that side of school, I probably could have done a lot better. Um, and unfortunately, it rolled on to my uni days. Um, I mean, I passed no problem, but I definitely went into uni as a fresh out of school, you know, 18-year-old going, you know, peas make degrees. <laughs> but I got there. Cool. What did you want to do when you grew up, apart from being taller? <laughs> um, Air Force, actually. I always, always as a kid wanted to be in the Air Force and follow in Dad's footsteps there. But um, I even went to uni to, to follow that um, and I studied supply chain management. But unfortunately, I had a few shoulder reconstructions um, and I also, right before I was about to apply, I had some blood clots in my lungs, unfortunately. Uh, so they just wouldn't come near me with a 10-foot pole after that because, you know, there's a 100 other young, fit, healthy that they could pop through as officers. So I totally got that. But that was a rude awakening to go, oh, what jobs in the real world are there? Because I'd never considered anything outside of the Air Force, ever, actually. Has, has the blood clot um, problem stayed with you? No, uh, it was. So I'd had a broken foot. I was in a moon boot. Um, and then being a female, they put it down to the moon boot and being on the pill, um, which apparently is a lot more common than I thought, like being on the pill and getting blood clots. I knew it was a risk, but I sort of didn't realise it was such a big risk. So um, off the pill um, and problem cleared up. So although I'm still now being um, a baloney entity, I'm still on blood thinners because that's like that main area that I've always got pressure on in the socket on the calf is where... I would get a blood clot, um, and once you ha once you've had one, you're more prone to. So at the moment, I'm still on just tablets, which is nice and easy. So just take one tablet a day for the blood clots. I think at the moment, I'd probably not be able to function. I think I'd be so afraid every sore muscle or every pain in my um, in my stump would be a blood clot. I think I'd be at the hospital every week worried about it. Sure, is that just aspirin for the blood thinners? No, no, I'm on um, like a prescription blood thinner um, called Duralto. So it's a newer drug opposed to the injections. So still high, like really good at thinning the blood, but not quite as full on as the injection. So um, I still bruise easily, but nowhere near as much as when I originally took the um, injections. You used to just bump yourself and you'd look like you'd been, been in a brawl. Yeah, sure. Um, I've got a bit of experience with blood clots. My wife had one 
um, quite a few years ago now. So I know I know a bit about it. Oh, they're scary. Yep, they are. Yeah, they're scary. They're um, yeah, and the scary thing was, um, so that a couple moved from the leg into the lung, and to think that I just felt I felt so fine. I just was a little bit out of breath, and that was it. Such ethereas could show such little, um, yeah. Like I just thought, no, I feel fine. I feel fine, no problems. And then it was, oh, you're in ICU for the night, and you've got clots. And I was like, what? Um, so just scary to think that you can feel so okay, but something really serious could be going on. Yeah, they're scary little buggers. Oh, yeah. So what was your first job out of school? Um, first job out of school was just retail. So while I was at uni, I just um, I sold shoes and jeans. <laughs> um, I worked at a shoe shop and a jean shop. So that was um, horrible for my spending habits, I must admit. <laughs> um, I ended uni with more clothes <laughs> than any female probably should. I'm pretty sure at one point when I went through and culled, um, I had like 14 or 15 pairs of jeans easily. Like, so not good on the budget, but good um, to the closet. I've got, like, I've got like two pairs of jeans and it depends on what colour I want. <laughs> i got a black and a blue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I had every shade of blue you could... <laughs> yeah, uh, probably every shade of blue you can get um, by the time I finished uni, I think. So mo- moving on a little bit, tell me about BMX and dirt bike riding. Uh, yeah, so um, when I was young, my brother got a dirt bike. Um, I would have been probably like 14 or 15. And I thought it was so cool, just always into the boys stuff, always into the boy sport. So that to me was just like the coolest thing ever. And my dad would not let me near the thing. <laughs> um and dad was really like no not for you like you're not getting one it's not for girls like that's not like no too dangerous um which in hindsight he was correct about that but anyway um uh yeah and honestly uh, I catch it and yeah he was definitely correct about the dangerous part um he was right there I should have listened <laughs> um fast forward a few years though um and I got my first dirt bike probably three and a half years ago um, so I was about 24 when I got my first bike, um, and I loved it. I, from the second I sat on it, I was like, "This is a sport for me." And I, from then on, just every single weekend was out. I didn't even know people that rode. I just went out to the um, motocross tracks and I introduced myself to people, and I just met all these really cool girls that rode. Um, and I just, you couldn't keep me off it. Like I just lived for riding it's just the best it's so much fun and everything every part of it you know when you have a tumble or you have a fall usually unless you go too big um like even that stuff learning and you know oh look the bruise I got from this or did you see that like I just I fell in love with it but not just the riding itself to people it's such a um it's just a sport where so many people just want like everybody wants to meet more people who ride like everybody wants somebody else to ride with it's such a cool sport it's not exclusive at all like everybody wants more people to be into dirt bikes and going out and camping on the weekends just the environment is just like i love it i love every part of it <laughs> that's cool that's very cool it did it did ultimately lead to the leg loss though um so dad was definitely right about dirt bikes being dangerous <laughs> um, i yeah like and i can admit when i was wrong i was wrong <laughs> um i had a you know, I had a uh, accident and I um, what we call cased a double, so it's two jumps and you try to clear the gap between two. Um, and instead of landing on the down ramp of the last jump, I landed on the upside of the ramp. Um, and so both my ankles just crushed on the pegs, like on the impact when I landed. 
Um, so the tib and fib on both legs just sort of crushed in. It'd be like jumping off like a fence or a roof or something and just landing flat and just that impact just crushed in. Um, so that was a long journey. Um, I think it was four months. I had the external fixator bars on my legs for a few weeks before they'd operate, um, which was a horrible experience. I must admit that was really difficult. Um, and I think that's what made essentially getting my amputation later on much easier. Like waking up with those bars on both legs was, I couldn't even look at them. I had to sort of cover them up. This was the first couple of days made me really sick to look at. Um, um, waking up knowing that I was going to have a stump was just like nothing in comparison. I felt and I was so much more prepared for it. Um, so I was four months totally non-weight bearing on both legs after the accident. Um, and I broke my hand, which also had surgery on it. Uh, so using a wheelchair was... Um, a fun experience. Uh, so that was, um, I'm definitely having sort of flashbacks to that time with being isolated. Like that was, I couldn't even get outside though then because there's stairs, you know, I couldn't get the wheelchair outside and it was just sort of four months of, I only left the house for like a surgeon's visit and a doctor's visit, I think, in that whole time. Um, so really isolating um, moments. Got through it. Like, you know, you got to just buck up and I watched a lot of Netflix. <laughs> Um, oh yeah <laughs> but now I'm like damn it I've watched everything by the time we get to this one yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I've, we've got nothing left <laughs> like I, I know like I spent four months doing nothing else um so yeah um two legs um and I knew from the get we knew from day one that uh the right leg was much worse but surgeons obviously don't say you know they always keep a little bit to themselves um they sort of don't want to give you definitive and it was and initially we got um mum and dad were told sort of like this will be a life-changing injury the specialist didn't talk to me because I was by that point I was a little bit out of it <laughs> um I remember the accident and everything so I was fine I didn't get knocked out it was just this really pathetic little crash actually we got it on video and it's not even impressive like I can't even show it off like look at this big stack <laughs> um I just kind of like hit the ground and tumble and I remember saying to my like you know, the adrenaline kicks in so quickly and is so much more effective than you would think it is because everyone says how painful that must have been. And I was like, well, it was, but it's not like your body just so much adrenaline pumps. And I said, no, I felt, you know, I sat down and I said to my girlfriend, they sort of ran over and it didn't look like anything big. And I said, I think I broke my ankles. And I'm like, what? And I was like yeah, I think, I think I broke your legs. <laughs> and Obviously, as we sat there for a little bit, we sat there for a few minutes, and then as the like adrenaline kind of mellows out a little bit, I was like, "Yeah, I know, I definitely, definitely broke my leg." Um, and I remember at the hospital, my girlfriend said to me, "They did all the X-rays and um, sort of in and out of it." By that point, you've had morphine and all the rest of it. And I remember sitting there like tapping my hand on the edge of the bed, like I was nervous. And they came in and they said, "Oh, you need surgery on your hands, like the one that you're tapping on the <laughs> bed." And I sort of threw my arms around and I was like, but my hand, like, I can't feel my hand. It's fine. And they're like, stop doing that. <laughs> um, and I was like, but what about, you know, the things I can feel? What, what about my legs? And I, they just gave me that um, we're going to have to get somebody else to come in and talk to you about that. And my girlfriend who came to the hospital with me said, do you want to call your, do you want to call someone now? Because I'd put it off for hours. <laughs> um, and I finally had to bite the bullet and call my, call my mum and tell her, um, which was the worst phone call I think I've ever had to make. <laughs> Even with even being on 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 all of the on all of the pain meds, I still thought, oh no, <laughs> I don't want to have to admit to mum that I had an accident on a bike, which they told me not to ride. <laughs> oh no, oh no. 
There's nothing oh, worse. There's nothing oh, worse no, than a mum who's right. I know. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. <laughs> even like, even as a 25 year old, I had my tail between my legs. Like, oh, I don't, I don't want to. Is there any way that I can hide this from them? And I was like, probably, probably might have been able to hide one leg, but not two. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> I had to move back in with them after the accident, um, obviously to help because um, you know not being able to walk is very difficult. So um, mum and dad, you know, helped with everything after that, like you know, cooking and doing the washing and that sort of stuff. So it was very, um, oh, it was a boring four months. <laughs> really lucky that my left foot healed up um, pretty well. Um, I've still got it, so it healed up much better than the right foot did. Um, so I'm really, really glad that only one foot um, was as bad as it was. Otherwise, I definitely would have been considering a double, like a bilateral. Yeah. So how, how did you come to the decision that you would be better off without it? I actually brought, um, I said the A word, an <laughs> invitation from my mum really, really early days, actually. I I wasn't even weight-bearing on my legs yet, so I would have been um, – a couple of weeks after my initial surgery and you're allowed to start doing the um like no weight bearing but you're allowed to take your moon boots off and start doing exercises where you like point your toes and bring them back and that sort of stuff um and even then I could feel a difference in my ankle um it felt it always felt like it could sit at about 90 degrees comfortably but it wouldn't move any further like to my and it felt like the joint had ended. It feels like when you straighten your elbow really hard and, and the bones are pushing together. Even before I started weight bearing, I could feel that. And I had a conversation with my mum who um, was a nurse. So she handled it with the whole situation just really, really well. Um, and I had a conversation with her and I said, you know, I know I'm crazy and I'm talking about it so early, but, um, you know, what happens if this foot, we knew the right foot was always going to be trouble um, and was worse. And I said, you know, what if what if this foot doesn't heal? What if it doesn't do the things I want to do? You know, I want to travel and I want to be able to walk and hike and I want to ride and, do, you know, do all this stuff. What if what if the foot doesn't do it? Um, and I was trying to get at amputation, but I thought she would think I was crazy. And uh, we both knew um, – my mum's had some surgeries on her foot, so was my, my nan. So we, we both knew that um, the next step, would be ankle fusion. We know that that's what they would suggest if the foot's not working and if you're in pain. We knew that the, that the joint would be fusion that they'd be talking about. And I knew just always, I always knew that an ankle fusion wasn't at 25, wasn't going to give me the function that I wanted. And mum said the same and was sitting there on the bed and she said, well, an ankle fusion is not an option, Georgia, at your age. And, and she knew that that's how I felt. And we both just looked at each other and I was sort of like, in my head, I'm like, well, you know, that means the only other option is amputation. But I didn't want to say it because I thought she'd think I was nuts. And I got it up and I said, you know, well, that means that the only other thing would be to get rid of it. And she said, yes. But if you need to do that, we'll discuss it when the time comes. She was just so nonchalant about it um, that it made me feel so comfortable knowing that if, if, it, if it never came good, that mum was just on board and didn't think I was nuts <laughs> at all, which was great. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, uh, I think I was six months total before I put my feet on the ground without moon boots. Um, and so once I started walking without the moon boots, straight away I knew. You could just feel, when I stood on my foot, you could just feel that it was bone on bone and there was no space between the joint and the cartilages. You could tell, you know, that sort of that arthritis, that joint pain, that chronic like all day ache. Um, and I worked really, really hard. I'd had a few shoulder reconstructions before. 
this surgery. So I was definitely knew that, you know, all of that small rehab stuff that they give you is really, really important. Um, so I did it all. Um, I did everything. And I just saw that left ankle improve tenfold where the right just wasn't wasn't moving at all. And my, my gait pattern was horrible when I walked. I couldn't bend my knee over my toe because the ankle wouldn't bend. So I sort of had to turn my hip out. And I'd, I looked so disabled, really, like to think that I have had a prosthetic for three and a bit months and I can pretty much jog on it and I walk and you couldn't even tell um to look back and look at the foot I had I just think god I looked so you could just tell I had such a problem and I had a foot like to think that I don't have a foot now and I walk so well blows my mind um and I just knew I knew that 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 was the it wasn't healing um and I didn't I just didn't want to wait any longer you know I didn't want to spend years trying to quote unquote salvage a joint that we knew even salvaged wasn't good. You know, a salvaged joint isn't a joint that works. It's something that's there and it looks normal, but we knew that it was never going to work properly, which to me seemed crazy to want to do that. But through my journey, I spoke to a lot of people before I made the decision between fusion or amputation. Um, and a lot of people that I spoke to who amputated said they'd wish they'd done it sooner. And then it really like rung true with me. And I just thought, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. Life, not to sound you know, all hippy-dippy about it. But, like, life's way too short to spend, you know, another two or three or four years salvaging and surgery after surgery to get something that we know in the end isn't going to function normally anyway. Sure. sure. A, lot of, a lot of people do wait too long, but it's usually on the advice of a surgeon. Yeah. Uh, my surgeon gave me the exact same advice. <laughs> um, we'll, he'll admit to this day. I used um, – I had a small foot surgery previously – um, and I'd gone to a surgeon that I really trusted. Um, and he saw me for my ankle. Um, and he will admit to this day that we did not see eye to eye on the amputation. Uh, he had always said, no, you need to fuse it. And then when it doesn't work, then you need to um, come back. And you need to – surgeons just see it as a failure. And that's the way they're trained to see it, as an absolute last resort and as like a failure. But to me, looking at – what I would do on a fusion and the effects on the other joints, like my gait is just so good now. Um, I, I can't see how you could look at what I'm doing now activity-wise and ever think it be a failure, um, which totally blows my mind that they think that way. But he will admit that we did not see eye to eye. Um, all of my, I probably brought it up too soon. I think I brought it up probably before the year mark with him. And he it was the first time I've ever seen him like thrown off. They're usually pretty collected and, you know, calm and, um, know what they're talking about and I think he was so left field for him but I threw him off and it was the first time I'd ever seen him like that and like what why why would you why would you even think that why would you what why are you asking me that why are you talking about amputations and I sort of just went oh okay I I hit, a, I hit a nerve on him there um, and all I did was I just kept gathering all the information um, I kept doing as much research as I could I read medical articles that just boggled my mind and took four or five times to read to understand what I was reading. I spoke to, um, like, thank God for social media. I was able to reach out to so many people um, through really different avenues. Like, I just searched hashtag ankle fusion on Instagram, and there were thousands of people that popped up that I was able to message. I found as many young people as I could um, with fusions, which is a hard task in its own. And I just gathered as much information. And every time I spoke with my surgeon, I was really calm, collected. Like I never went in there hysterical. I never, you know, cut it off because it's not working. You know, we had really um, calm conversations about it. And I just said, this is my worry with 
fusions. This is even a, even a good fusion, I think, isn't going to give me what I want. This is what I'm seeing with amputations. And then I knew that there were risks, you know, so I know there's risk of nerve pain and phantom pain. Uh, I know that there's risk of an infection and it could become an above me. I know that there's all of these risks. And um, I think at the end of the day, he just knew that I was going to get it done somewhere and that he knew that he could do a really good one and that I trusted him. Um, and I think he went, well, I know you're going to go anywhere else. I'd rather do it and give you the best outcome that I know I can. Uh, and But even even on surgery day, we were I said to him before we went in, I said, thank you. Like I know that this is probably a hard one for you. It was probably an ethically difficult one for you, you going, this isn't what I think is right. Um, but you listen to what I want, and I could never say thank you enough for that. But I thought that was a tough one for him. <laughs> Glad to see the back of me, I think. <laughs> I've, I've mentioned this in um, previous podcasts and previous episodes, sorry. Um, and um, there's um, quite a number of medical shows on TV that my wife loves to watch. Um, yeah. And, and um, you, you'll see someone brought into um, emergency after, say, a motorbike accident. And the doctor will stand there and say, the worst case scenario is, is amputation. And I think to myself, no, actually, the worst case scenario yeah. is death. I think I think the medical community has that attitude that amputation is a horrible, horrible thing, and yet so many of us live comfortably with it. Um, we don't we don't make any noise. We're just living our lives, and um, they they don't see that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that there, when I started telling people, um, I knew after about a year, I had hands down made the decision. If it wasn't that surgeon, it was going to be somebody because I knew that was the right choice. And I and I told people, you know, I told, my dad was not on board. My mum was, um, and I I told anybody who'd listen when people asked if I wore like a, an AFO brace, like a really good brace on my leg, which helped me do a lot more. But it it wasn't, it was nowhere near what I'm doing now on a on a prosthetic, and I've only had it, you know, three months. Um, so I, and so people would ask, you know, what happened, and I'd tell them, and I would make a point to say, you know, in a, in about a year, I'm get, I'm going to get it amputated. And people would, not to shock people, just to talk about it, because you asked, so I'm happy to talk. And the responses that I got, like, 99% of the time were, you know, absolutely shocked. Are you crazy? Like, anything would be better than that. Anything would be better than an amputation. You can't do that. You can't do it. And I'm like, well, I can do it. And there isn't an option that's going to be better. Surely there's another option. And I said, yes, there's, you know, a fusion, but here's my issues. We'll do that. Why would you get rid of your foot if you can keep it? And I was like, well, why keep a foot if it's not going to function like a foot? Um, and I, but I've always been able to come at it with a really practical view. Like, you know, if your foot's going to kill you, get up rid of it. If it's not going to work like a foot, do I want it? Well, not really. Can I get something that works better? Yep. Let's do it. And I think if, like, my thought was always if I talk about it more, maybe maybe just that little bit of talking means the next time that somebody hears about an amputation, their response won't be, you can't do that, or that's the end of the world, or, like, you know, this horrible – I think it's just got such a horrible view, and if it, if it didn't and if we spoke about it more, it wouldn't be such a horrific thing to people. And I think that for people getting amputations, mine was planned, yes, which obviously helps with dealing with – involved and I can't talk about what it would be like to wake up um, and just not have your limb there. I would hope that I would be able to come at the same view and go, okay, you got rid of it because it was either going to kill me or it wasn't going to work. I'd hope that I'd have that view, but I can't, you know, I can't speak uh, about that. But if we didn't have this, if there wasn't that negative connotation always around 
losing a limb being the end of the world and, and the worst thing, then maybe when people wake up, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't be quite so difficult, you know, if everybody was a little bit more open to how they can be a gift and how they're actually really brilliant and the prosthetics, you know, I, I just think it would, it, it could make such a big difference. So I always made a point of telling, if anybody asked about the foot, I made a point of telling the whole story. And even my mum got really frustrated with some family members when she told them. I was in a room once with a bunch of amputees. I can't remember what it was. Um, There was was someone presenting a different kind of prosthetic or something. And um, he at the at the start of it, he said, um, "Now, who who here is happy to be an amputee?" And I was the only one to put up my hand. Well, I was I was the only person in there that um, started out with something that was not up to scratch. My hand would have been up with (laughs) you. So I'm I'm grateful for my journey. Yeah, so I, like that that would help. I, I understand that that helps me so much dealing with. Tell me a bit. Tell me about the party they threw you at work. Oh, yeah. So um, everybody at work had obviously heard about uh, my plan from day one. Um, so, and some of them were still a little bit uh, shocked when I actually went through with it. But the day before um, my surgery, I was at work. And they threw me a surprise pirate party. <laughs> so um, they had like eye patches, yeah. So eye patches and hooks and little swords and hats and stuff. And they got uh, like everybody from we had some engineers and other officers, so they got them all to come down. Um, and yeah, threw me this big surprise lunch, and everybody dressed up. Um, there were a few people that I think uh, I could definitely tell were waiting for me to sort of lose it at them. Um, there are a few people that I think thought I was so okay with it that I mustn't have been okay with it, like that I was just in denial, um, who were there sort of with their pirate hat on looking at me like, oh, God, she's going to flip. Um, I thought it was hilarious, though. It was really, really cool send-off. And that was the day before surgery, too, so it was just such a really nice send-off. Um, but apparently our like our CEO came in the next day or the day after, and there was still like some pirate stuff hanging around. And <laughs> apparently he was like, what? What's all this pirate stuff? That's and somebody not PC. Him and he was mortified. Apparently, he was like, "You can't do that. That's like what?" And everyone's like, "No, it's okay." And he was, he's probably thinking, "Yes, yeah, he's thinking lawsuit." And I thought it was great. Yeah, he absolutely. Apparently, just had a bit of a meltdown, thinking that I'm going to come back to talking harassment. <laughs> yeah, it was great. They were all um, they were all pretty good with it. Quite a few years ago, I went to a fancy dress party as a pirate, and I in my in my garage, I dug out a very old leg that I had worn to death, um, and I and I got a I got an old saw and I I cut off the foot um, to towards the ankle, and uh, then I slipped a um, a big thick black stocking over it so it looked like a peg leg. And we got to the party, and. Uh, we got, we got to the party and this young girl came running over and she said, oh, I love your outfit, I love your outfit. <laughs> and how did you do the leg? And I said, actually, I did it with a saw and the poor thing, so you could just see the blood running from her face. She was about to pass out. It was horrible and hilarious at the same time. So funny. <laughs> uh, I have to admit, um, yeah, when there's moments like that where you catch people or you say something, um, there's been a few moments at work where I think my new job that I'm at now and I was sort of sitting behind the desk and I said something about my leg and I was new and somebody was like, what? And I was like, oh, I don't, like I, and I rolled out from behind the desk and I'm like, oh my God, oh, so sorry. Oh, I didn't know. Like, yeah, it cracks me up a bit um, to catch people off guard. <laughs> yeah. 
it's good and you gotta have a laugh with it and i think it's good because it, it shows other people that it's okay to like not everyone you know you can talk about disability and you can ask questions about um disability and it's totally okay like you know it doesn't, you don't have to tiptoe around it i think those things are what you know helps instill that fear of amputation and think that it's the worst thing and you know don't talk to somebody about it or don't look at the leg like i see parents pull kids away sometimes uh, once or twice there's been a young kid and you can see their mouth opening and they're like oh, about to say something and the mum's like well let's go just grabs their hand and sort of pulls them off before the where's your leg or what's the leg like you know just before it happens uh, which always makes me giggle but I think like let him ask it's okay I had my foot amputated in 1968 I was five years old so I've grown up with it and uh and growing old with it too apparently lately um and I've always welcomed I've always welcomed people coming up and asking questions and stuff. As long as they're not rude, um, I've never, never knocked anyone back. But I particularly like kids coming up and um, and asking questions. And I always let them touch it and stuff like that. And I always find that um, parents who drag their kids away or tell them to shush, don't ask questions, um, it becomes very socially isolating for the for the person who has the disability. Because all of a sudden the kids don't want to talk to them and they grow up thinking that way that we shouldn't talk to them yes yes absolutely and that's not the case at all i totally agree and then it, and in for life you'd think oh oh i shouldn't look at the wheelchair or i shouldn't ask questions or i shouldn't look at the leg or i should not yes yeah where it's totally different and i love when people ask me questions and it usually leads to tons of questions like i i always walk away and feel like wow like i've totally educated that person and they usually start with i'm so sorry like, I'm so sorry that that's happened or you're so young. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, like, it's, honestly, it's not. And I, and I love walking away feeling like that's one other person that I've educated and one other person that's not going to think, oh, that's the end of the world. And this poor person. And I'm like, no, not poor. Like, this is a new lease on life. This is my ability to have a life, you know, like this is, you know, they lose a leg for two reasons. It's either going to kill you or it's not going to work again, you know. And so I'm like, that's it. It's the two reasons. And this, this beautiful thing. It gives me the opportunity to live and to do the things that I want to do, like not poor me, like lucky me, lucky that I have access to it. Absolutely. There's, um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday um, featuring Kurt Fernley. Um, you may or may not know about Kurt. He's um, a wheelchair athlete. Um, and, um, and the guy that was interviewing, interviewing him, um, Mark Howard, asked him, he said to him, you know, what's the proper etiquette? Um, you know, do you, just, do you just go up to someone and say, you know, how come you're in a chair or, you know, what? how do you start a conversation with someone who has a disability? And um, Kurt look, Kurt said to him, said, just try and come up to me and say, hey, you go, mate, same as anyone else. And then you can broach the subject of what's going on. But, um, you know, first of all, talk to someone like they're a normal person. Yeah. And then, then get same into as anyone stuff. else. If, you, if you're inter interested in a really good podcast, listen to the Howie Games. Yeah. Yeah. Just say hello. Like. Just like the fact that I don't have a foot or the fact that you're in a chair doesn't change the fact that I am a normal person. <laughs> I um I must admit I have seen um on social media and YouTube and stuff like that some disabled podcasts or YouTube videos. Um I've seen quite a few that are labelled or named how not to talk to somebody with a disability or what not to say and they absolutely grind my gears. Um because they're in, <laughs> they're encouraging that view. That, you know, there's these videos out there that have hundreds of thousands of views saying, 
don't walk up to me and ask me like, where's your leg? Or don't ask, how dare you ask me about the most traumatic day of my life? How dare you? Like these really full on videos. And I just think, wow, you can politely tell somebody, I'm so sorry, but I really don't like to talk about it if you don't like to talk about it. And and you're not going to discourage that person from asking again. If if somebody asks politely and you come back with that response, you've shut that person down totally into the world of disability. They're never going ever to open up or want to approach somebody ever again about any kind of disability. And you're just shut. And I'm like, no, like you can politely tell somebody, but all these videos, they just, they kill me. I'm like, that's not, you're just supporting that negative view of disability and people being, you know, quote unquote, afraid of disabilities and afraid of how to approach people with them because I'm like, that is exactly the opposite of what most of us want. Like that is not, no, <laughs> that's, you're just supporting it. Okay. So after the amputation, uh, you would have gone through some rehab. How did you handle that? Uh, great. Um, I did as much as I could before the surgery to sort of help prepare. Um, obviously, like my foot wasn't super functional, so I wasn't doing a ton. But I did what I could to sort of try and I tried to lose a little bit of weight and tidy up the diet because I knew that that would help using crutches. Um, I think I was only in hospital for about four nights and then I went home, um, but really skilled on crutches by that point. So that helped. I didn't find any issue with my balance. Um, so they were fine after I think night two, I was allowed to use the crutches to get around. Um, but I had also practiced on crutches. Like I'd spent, I'd used them before, but I'd spent some time, uh, in the few weeks leading up, like sort of getting my stamina up around the house, um, which is a really little thing, but I think that helped a ton. And then rehab, the initial rehab before you get your leg was a bit sort of like, um, just to keep you moving. Um, cause you do so much sitting down, um, but the real rehab when you got that first leg, I, oof, that was, <laughs> um, I remember putting that prosthetic on for the first time at rehab and standing and just standing, you know, not even walking. And I just remember thinking for the first probably two weeks of wearing it just at rehab, you know, like the three days a week that you get to wear it. I remember thinking like, there's never going to be a time ever where I just put the leg on and am able to walk. Because it used to take that whole hour. By the end of the hour, I'd feel good and comfortable in it or ish. But I just thought, never, I'm never going to put this thing on and it just feel a part of me and it just feels comfortable to walk in, which disappears really, disappears so quickly. But the initial rehab stuff, oh my God, so boring. <laughs> I like, I'll admit, oh my God, isn't it just, you know, um, just a weight transferring and an hour of like, okay, we're just going to, Stand on the prosthetic and tap your toe on the step, and that's it. And I got to do twenty of those, and we're going to do three reps. And you know that takes forty minutes, and it's um, boring, boring stuff. But for anyone new out there, do the boring stuff. Like all of that really little, little boring stuff makes such a big difference to walking. Like if you get that small, once it comes to walking, it's just going to come so much more naturally, and it's going to, going to happen much more quickly if you stick to the boring stuff. But good lord, is it boring? <laughs> And, um, yeah, painful. Probably the first sort of couple of weeks, I just, yeah. Now I put my leg on in the morning, I just get up and go. It's fine. I, like, liner on, slip on the leg and just walk out to the kitchen and it's fine. And some days I stop and go, wow. I remember a time when I couldn't even stand on it and when I thought, no, it's never going to happen. And I'm three and a half months into having a leg and I throw it on in the morning and off I go. Like, it's nothing. Like, I've had it my whole life. Have you Have you fallen asleep with it on yet? Yes, I have. <laughs> Once, um, I was out camping a few weekends ago. Oh, my God. I woke up and was like, oh, this is disgusting. <laughs> Yuck. I, like, 
so I like threw it off. I got my liner off. I was like, oh, yuck. Like, I felt, oh, yeah. It's such a horrible feeling waking up with that on. Like, I don't know. Like, oh, yeah, never again. I'm like, always make sure I take my leg off. <laughs> Even having, like, just the liner on. Because I was camping and I was sort of like, oh, I just want to be able to easily, you know, get. it's been a big day on the uneven surfaces and, like, loose gravel and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, I'll just. I was like, I might just keep it on so that if I need to get up in the middle of the night, you know, go to the bathroom, I can just get up easily. Get it off. Get it yeah, off. no, wake up. And I was like, I'll get it off. <laughs> like, oh, God, yeah, no, never again. Although, how, like, I don't understand how, like, it's so comfortable. Like, I wear it all day, no problem. But, yeah, sleeping, no. Don't even, don't even try, people. <laughs> how, long did, how long did it take to get back to work? Um, I went back to work before I had my leg. Um, so, I think I was back to work about three or four weeks off totally um and then I was back part-time so I um I think I was doing three days a week um part-time before I got my leg and then I did that for a couple of months and then it was sort of Christmas uh, and then I went back in January full-time yeah but I met a like desk job so so that made it much easier sure how did that feel um, going back to some sort of normality when everything had changed? Amazing. <laughs> felt so good. Like the beginning of this year felt even better because it was the first time going back full time, back into like a full proper routine. Because the part time, I kept thinking to myself, uh, it takes a while to get over that being tired. I think like people talk about your body needing time to heal. Um, and although I was looking down and going like, yeah, I'm pretty healed and I feel good and my scars, you know, incisions closing up, I feel great it does actually take a big toll on your body. So like, don't let yourself feel bad. If you're like, Oh, I should be able to work full time now. You know, I'm even sitting at a desk going like, why can't I, but it took me a long time. You know, I'd finished the day and I was exhausted. Um, and I think it really does take a while for that to sort of kick in. But then by January, when I started back full time, I was so ready to go and just loved it. Like going back to, yeah, a normal routine felt absolutely incredible. Which is why I'm so bummed because I'm like, I'm finally back into this good routine and now we're working from home and funny hours and stuff. And I'm like, no, I only got a taste of it for like three months. <laughs> Not even. Uh, but it felt great. And driving too. Um, so I drove myself to work uh, from, to be honest, my mum didn't let me drive the first few weeks because she was worried if I was really tired by the end of the day, which I was, but manageable. And then after that, she let me um, drive myself. <laughs> I think drive, driving is really important. It gives you a little bit of independence. Oh, even just to be able to get in the car and go out for a drive. You know, if you're sort of not at the point where you're like, I'm ready to go out for a big walk or I'm a bit tired and just want to get out of the house. Yeah, like being able to drive, incredible. And with, like, if anybody out there is planning an amputation, sort your license out and your car out before. So I did it, um, I think about two weeks before surgery, I'd had my license and my car changed over. So I had to legally drive left foot. Um, two weeks before my surgery so that it was ready to go when I was ready to go. Um, and that was probably like the best thing that I did to get prepared. Um, it made it, and then I wasn't dealing with NDIS applications and rehab and trying to work or trying to feel normal and trying to do this and trying to figure out how the license works and how the car works and getting it to the, yeah, it was just, if you have the ability to plan, if it's in a quote unquote elective, I hate that term, but if it's an elective amputation, um, do what you can to prepare and getting your license and car changed over beforehand is such such a, a good step. I've never I've never driven a, a modified car. I've always driven this a straight auto 
Well, I was thinking about it, um, but then when I called Department of Main Roads, it seems like a really grey area. Every I thought it would be really black and white, like either you can do this and you can't do this. And the more I tried talking to people, the more that I just got – I got different answers from everybody. People told me, yes, it's legal, no, it's illegal, no, you can't, yes, you can't. Like everybody had a different opinion on what you could or couldn't do. Um, and I think I was just super concerned about making sure I was like, yep, I'm doing the right thing. And it, a lot came back uh, – a few of the driving schools I called said, um, like, yeah, your, your OT can sign you off with the left foot pedal, change your license over. And then I thought – if I want to get back to driving with the right foot later on, I might come at that later on. I was just desperate to sort of get it fixed or sorted before and have the answer. But hey, it's such a grey area. And Department of Main Roads doesn't know. Like every time I talked to somebody, it was a different answer. Oh, we're not sure. Oh, it depends what your OT says. Whatever they say, we'll do. And then someone else said, no, you can't do this. And you must have a modified car. Or you can do this. And it was just, that was probably one of the hardest things organised for me, actually. I felt really stressed trying to figure that out because the answers were just so different and I just wanted to make sure I was covered by insurance you know that last thing I want to do is have an accident and then go oh because you were driving like this you weren't covered which really worried me but I still I still don't know what the real answer is on what you can and can't do I just went for at the time I thought yep left foot foot pedal I know is fine and I'll I would really like to go back to driving right foot um at a later date though so I can hire a car I can drive a car yeah, because that'd be travelling and driving us. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I love the fact that I've got a um. A, there's a condition on my license to say that um I have to drive with my prosthesis on, um, which I find hilarious because in the in the <laughs> words in the words of Adam Hill, I can't reach the pedals without it. I was just gonna say, like, if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be driving. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that's good to know though that I can get that sorted later on. Like, definitely, that, that's on your license.
but it also I tried clips. Um, so I got myself because a lot of BMXs use clip shoes. So I tried to clip just on the prosthetic side so I can get my other foot off for safety. Um, it it took me oh my god it took me like five minutes easy to get the shoe clipped in for the first time. I was so frustrated. Um, so that is a bit of a learning curve figuring out how to clip in. Um, but. Just not having the riding prosthetic. I realized at first I was like, oh, it's fine. I'll just figure it out with the leg that I've got. I'll be able to make it work. But it is difficult. Um, you know, like my walking leg is is so high up in the back of my calf that I can't get like a full pedal over the top of the bike. It sort of throws you off. And then it makes you like unclip from the pedal. Or if I'm not in the pedal, it twists the foot so much that you'll sort of slip off the pedal. So I haven't been able to get back on the track yet. And my bike is just sitting there staring at me waiting. <laughs> um I though social media again like what a great force when you want to use it um, to connect with people. I had a lot of trouble finding other amputees that um, ride BMX bikes, uh, especially racing BMX. I've come in contact with a couple that um, do like the street stuff, like the trips, um, but they want to come off the pedals. They want to be able to move their feet. So they're racing the BMX um, really different body position. So you've got to crouch down so low, like when you pump over the jumps. Um, and the leg, I've definitely found that I'm it, it's going to have to wait for that riding leg, which has been approved finally, which is really exciting. So I should have that soon um, so I can talk to my prosthetist and get all those little things tweaked. So I'll be able to stay on the um, pedal and we're cutting it down really, really low in the back. So like I probably wouldn't at all. It'd just be for riding so I can crouch down low enough to sort of pump through um but that yeah that's probably the only time as well that's probably the second time that I've ever felt that the prosthetic has held me back from jumping um but totally manageable you know to to say that I want a a sports leg and to 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 make it work for riding is as we were talking about with the NDIS is doable um sometimes a little bit of a justification needed but um the riding leg can't you know combine with a daily leg so they definitely approved that one straight off the bat and i'm just I'm so excited for that to let me actually go towards that goal like oh i'm so excited that's just it's been sitting there since day one <laughs> I, used, I used to ride a lot when i was a kid um and not bmx but just road bikes and stuff and my brother had a really nice road bike and i i borrowed it one day um, with his permission, of course. Um, and he, yeah. had cl- he had clips on that. And I clipped, I clipped my prosthetic into it. And um, I was riding along, I must have been only about 14. And I was riding along Pasco Vale Road down here in Melbourne, which is quite a busy road. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a little bit spooked by how close the cars were getting to me. So I got up on the footpath and coming the other way was a lady with a pram. So I got off the footpath onto the nature strip and I managed to get, because the the road tyres are pretty thin, I managed to get the tyres, both back and front tyres, caught in a gap, a small oh, gap no. between the grass and the, and the pavement. And the, and the bike just ground to a very, very slow stop and then started to no. lean over, of course, to the right-hand side no, where no. I can't get my foot out of the cliff until I just fell over really, really slowly. You just see it coming, like, no, I can't do anything about this. <laughs> yeah, that makes me a bit nervous about being clipped in. Um, yeah, yeah, so I've been practising the out motion, so I know I can get that. But um, I did have a few near, not, I was just out the back of, you know, mum and dad, so not much room, and I was just practising balancing and clipping in and out. And I, I 
I used to be such a rough and tumble and, you know, even my dirt bike accident was not that I was cocky and I thought that like, I hadn't been riding long. So it's not that I was cocky and I thought, oh, I can clear this jump. But I sort of thought, what's the worst that can happen? Like, I thought that I had, uh, you know, calculated the risk. I didn't do it correctly. Um, and I, my thought process was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and my thought process was, I'm probably not going to make this. But, you know, what happens? I, I come off and I, I break an arm, like big whoop, you know? Uh, and I just, I'm not, I'm definitely not that person anymore since the accident. And that's actually been a really difficult thing to, for me, that's probably been the hardest, not getting used to my body without a leg or not, you know, the body image. None of that's ever worried me. Like having the stump, love it. It's never worried me at all. But the thing that I found the hardest is, is that the whole thing has changed. So now pedaling on a BMX never would have worried me never ever going down a hill or starting at the top of a steep ramp at the track like never would have been a thing and now that's a really big worrying thing for me because I know that something so small can change and and getting the prosthetic out like when I have slipped on the bike a little bit trying to practice I've and you put that leg out it doesn't, it's so hard to learn how to catch yourself on a prosthetic I've, I've ridden, I've ridden because it feels like life, you know I've you, never been able to work out how it's to so hard <laughs> yeah like, it's so difficult Okay, good. Well, good to know that it's not just like, yeah, I, I can't imagine it ever becoming easy either because uh, uh, you just get that phantom sensation and I feel like my real foot's there but it's twisted or I'm on the side of my foot and then I've got no idea where the prosthetic actually is and even just in that split moment. And that's probably been, yeah, I found that really harder than anything else, honestly, is to just get over that, God, I know that something little can cause something big and like oh if I put that foot out I don't know where it is it really feels like you're footless when you fall like yeah that's that's probably going to be the biggest um obstacle I think getting into the getting back into BMX yeah so protection everywhere every yeah, every elbow pad I, knee pad I, I consciously wanted to practice or anything well that's just, true I that's, just, that's, that's true I just, to, a, I just need to a fall judge that side <laughs> my left hand turns are incredible though Yes, I think I feel like that's what it is just going to be getting used to, knowing that you're not going to judge that well. Like elbow pads, put them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make sure, make sure you're going anti-clockwise around the course. Yeah, yeah. Forget the right side. All left will be fine. <laughs> Look, thanks so much, Top, for your time and your honesty. It's been a delight to hear your story and share your journey. And thanks so much to you, my dear listener, for putting up with my ramblings. If you think you know someone who might enjoy my ramblings, please share this podcast with them. That's about There's about 20 good hours of listening for you to enjoy. However you listen to podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe and download. It really does help us get noticed. If you would like to share your story, please get in touch. It's painless and only takes an hour of your time. All our stories are important and I'd love to hear yours. Check out the Facebook page by doing a search for Missing Bits and feel free to comment or leave a message. Um, get in touch because I'd love to talk to everyone. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute delight. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me.